Our text this afternoon is the last part of verse 8 of Psalm 52. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. I trust that as we read this psalm together, congregation of our Lord Jesus, that as we came to the conclusion of this psalm and uh, our text in particular, uh, you notice the joyful notes here expressed in our text. Notes of uh, joyful resolve, we might say. These are words that express a kind of triumph in uh, the face of the power of evil, in the face of the power of evil men. Notice the title of this psalm. For the director of music, a mass skill of David when Doeg, the Edomite, had gone to Saul and told him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. You can actually read the background to this psalm in 1 Samuel 22, which gives the account of David coming to the priests at Nob there and receiving assistance from Ahimelech, thinking that David was on the king's business. He provided food. Uh, the bread that had uh, been taken from the, the show table the day before was given to David and his men, and uh, Ahimelech supplied David with the sword of Goliath. But Doag, this Edomite, was there, and he observed this transaction. And when Saul accused his men of treachery and not informing him of David and his movements, Doag spoke up and implied that Ahimelech was committing treachery against him and supplying his enemy. And of course, that led to the slaughter of the priests of the Lord. Eighty-five priests were, were butchered. In fact, their entire families were wiped out and their city destroyed. And with that background, we might well think that the reference to the mighty man there in verse 1, why do you boast of evil, you mighty man, is a reference to Doag, the, the Edomite. And that may be, but it is more likely that it is actually a reference to Saul himself. Saul, who in other places is called a, a mighty man, or a, a hero, if you will, a warrior. And certainly, Saul was guilty of these terrible sins that are enumerated in this psalm in terms of deceit, false accusations. He accused his own men of, of treachery, treason. He accused his own son of aligning himself with David against him. He falsely accused the priests of the Lord without really taking any interest in establishing the truth. And all this was rooted in his suspicion and false accusation of David, as if he were a rival trying to replace him. So certainly the description of deception and a deceitful tongue here applies to Saul himself. And Saul, perhaps more than Doeg, was in a position to trust in his wealth, to trust in his power, rather than to trust in the Lord. And Saul's death, unlike Doeg's, of which we really know nothing, 
indeed would vindicate God's righteousness as described here in the psalm. And it would show the desperate foolishness of opposing God and his saints. And so while it's true that Doeg the Edomite carried out uh, the slaughter of these 85 priests of the Lord and their families, he was but a tool of Saul. And David was the special target of Saul's hatred and his treachery. And Saul was willing to destroy anyone who got in his way in his pursuit of David. Destroy them with his tongue, destroy them with a sword. Saul indeed fits the description of the mighty man who boasts in his strength and who is an enemy of the Lord. But even there he stands as a type of those who oppose God. But it's against this dark background of, of wickedness and opposition to God and to his, his people that this psalm ends with this great uh, contrast, this contrasting security and stability and confidence of the one who trusts in God. Here is the believer in the Lord God. Here he takes his stand, as it were. Evil appears to be powerful. Evil appears to be menacing. But he's not intimidated because he has taken hold of God's mercy. He has taken hold of God's loving kindness, his covenant faithfulness, and he's holding on with both hands. And he will not let go. Not now, not in the future. But, in contrast to the mighty in their wickedness and opposition to God, but I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. That's an inspiring kind of resolve of faith. It's the kind of resolve of faith that indeed should be ours in our circumstances as we have to contend with enemies, spiritual enemies, as we have to contend with our own, our own sins and weaknesses and problems and with uncertainties in our personal lives or in the world in which we live. Indeed, it, it may, it ought to be our resolve as believers to trust in God's unfailing love, to trust in his mercy, his faithfulness forever and ever. And we're going to look at different aspects of that trust that characterizes the believer. It's a trust in God as sinners, as sinners trusting in God's mercy every day. Now it's true that this psalm before us is not a psalm of, of confession of sin, like the previous psalm, like Psalm 51, which begins this way, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your covenant faithfulness, your loving kindness, have mercy on me, 
According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. This psalm of repentance is a psalm that takes hold of God's loving kindness as a sin-pardoning God. David's grasp of God's loving kindness was a grasp of God's saving mercy to sinners who are undeserving and guilty. Even when we look at this contrast in this psalm, which the psalmist saw between himself and the the mighty opposition, that contrast is not to be conceived of as a contrast between uh, David himself on the one hand as though David were uh, naturally uh, superior and holy, and then on the other hand there is the one who is just hopelessly wicked and that's just all there is to it. Rather, it's the contrast between one who took hold of God's covenant mercy and one who despised it, who didn't value it. In fact, verse 1 might bring this out. It's, it's lost in your translation. I think you either have to trust me on this one or consult other translations. But most translations render verse uh, 1 of this psalm this way. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures continually. And in his boastful wickedness, the enemy of the psalmist is not going to destroy him because God's loving kindness is is on his side. But even the, the, the comparison between the boast of the wicked and the enduring loving kindness of God, in a sense, offers a rebuke to the wicked. They should turn to God. They should seek his mercy themselves. God's loving kindness endures forever. And so the contrast here is between one who trusted in God's mercy and one who trusts in what? His riches? Who trusts in his power, in himself? The believer's resolve to trust in God's mercy is a resolve to receive the truth and comfort of forgiveness in our Lord Jesus Christ. We sang Psalm 65 that speaks of the reality of of iniquity and sin and transgression. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. There's a rendering of this that some of you may be familiar with, which says, our sins rise up against us, prevailing day by day. But thou wilt show us mercy. And take our sins away. And this is a resolve that we need to practice every day. Even as our Lord Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts. Even as we pray daily for daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And isn't it true, brothers and sisters, that there's a kind of, there's a kind of boldness boldness in faith. Even You might even say there's a kind of shamelessness that's required of a believer at this very point. To come before God daily, every day, and say, Father, forgive me. Be merciful to me. I've sinned. Knowing that we've sinned the same sins that we've sinned so many times before. 
There's a kind of shamelessness to it, you might say. Not the kind of shamelessness that has a slight view of sin. It says, oh, I say, God, forgive me. And that's, that's his job. We can assume that God will forgive us. No big deal. No, the shamelessness is not the result of a slight view of sin. It's not a refusal to either ignore or to deny our sin, our repeated sins. But it's a shamelessness also that perseveres in believing God's undeserved mercy and does not uh, despair or continue in sin, to use familiar language for the form for baptism. How often must I forgive my, my brother who sins against me? Seven times? A brother who comes to us and says, I've sinned, forgive me. Jesus taught us that we're to forgive him. And if he comes again the same day, and says, I've sinned, forgive me, we're to forgive him. And if he comes again that day and says, I've sinned, forgive me, really, we're to forgive him. You'd think by the second or third time, there would be a kind of shamelessness and a kind of embarrassment to come again and say, forgive me. How often must we forgive our brother? Jesus said 70 times seven. And he's not simply just teaching us something about exercising charity towards one another and being ready to forgive. But he's teaching us what it is to be sinners who live daily by the mercy and the forgiveness of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever as a sinner, trusting in his forgiveness every day. The mercy of God endures continually. And a failure to come to God for mercy is the great sin of unbelief. Thankfully, it is to God's honor and glory to forgive sins. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins for the sake of Christ Jesus, our, our advocate, who paid the price to secure our redemption. And we're exhorted to come boldly to the throne of grace because we have this high priest who offered the atoning sacrifice and who always lives to intercede for us. And so we're exhorted to come boldly to the throne of grace so that we might, what, obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And a fundamental posture, if you will, the position of a believer is to trust in God's pardoning mercy, the loving kindness that forgives our sins, and to do that daily. But this believer's resolve to trust in God is also a resolve as sufferers, trusting in God's mercy come what may. The murder of the priest, we know, caused great distress and anguish for David, who saw himself as the occasion for this terrible slaughter. Imagine what, what it must have been for Abiathar, the one descendant of Ahimelech who escaped this, this genocide, if you will. 
who escaped to David. How could a merciful God allow such a terrible thing? The slaughter of these priests, and their, their wives and their children. Isn't that a common expression that you've perhaps heard with regard to other things that take place in this world? How can a merciful God allow such a thing to happen? And we should never speak those kinds of words. Not, not us. Not, not us who believe in Jesus Christ crucified. Who believe that this most heinous thing that ever took place on the face of the earth the prince of glory in the hands of wicked men, crucified. And yet we know that it was by deter the determinate foreknowledge and counsel of God, whereby he redeemed a new humanity through the death of his son. God working his marvelous ways even through these heinous acts of people. And yet it's true that to witness or to experience great suffering is a test of faith. It's a test of faith in the goodness of God, in, in his mercy. Well, faith triumphs when it meets this test with the kind of resolve we hear in our text. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. In the face of suffering, David would face trials his whole life. The record of his life in, in the scriptures show that. And we hear his cries in many of the psalms of suffering. In which he, as a, as a type of our Lord Jesus Christ, even giving expression to the sufferings of the Savior himself, cries out to God in anguish. And the Psalms also show us the way to hold on to God in the midst of suffering. In Psalm 56, Be merciful to me, O God, for men hotly pursue me. All day long they press their attack. My slanderers pursue me all day long. Many are attacking me in their pride. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. You hear that resolve, that determination in the face of opposition and suffering. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? Or compare the Apostle Paul and his fellow ministers in the account of uh, their suffering, which we can read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. In verse 8, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. In the face of trials and sufferings that brought them to the point of death and to despair of life, 
They experience God's deliverance, and they resolve to continually trust in that. And this account is recorded for the instruction and comfort of believers, one and all. He comforts us in all our tribulations so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever as a sufferer, come what may. The Bible forbids us to worry about the future or to live in fear. But the Bible does teach us to be realistic about suffering, that it is part of the Christian life, that, that we cannot escape. But if we find ourselves in the midst of, midst of suffering, we must not think that this is inconsistent with God's great love and mercy towards us. In Lamentations chapter 3, it says in verse 22 and following, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Because of the Lord's mercy, his loving kindness. And then verse uh, 32, though he brings grief, he will show compassion. He will have mercy. So great is his unfailing love. Suffering is not inconsistent with God's mercy and compassion. And a realistic view of suffering arms us also for the future. First Peter speaks of that in chapter 4 where it says, Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also uh, with the same attitude. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of this name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. God doesn't give grace for tomorrow's trials. See, that's why it's, it's sinful and uh, very fruitless to live in worry. Because when we worry about tomorrow, what we're doing is we're taking burdens upon ourselves without God's help. Because God never promises to help us worry. Right? And so we're taking troubles without any basis in Scripture to, uh, to get strength and help to, to worry well. 
God doesn't give suffering grace until it's needed. But God's mercy endures forever. And that's why even in view of unknown sufferings that may await us, as believers we may confess with this note of triumph that I will trust, I do trust in the mercy of God forever, come what may. Because God's mercy is unfailing, whatever unknown trials may come. And that's the resolve we hear. Thirdly, it's a resolve also that is made by believers as saints, trusting in God's mercy all along the way. As saints, now we say. See, that's another biblical description of believers. We're looking at what it means to trust in God's mercy from these different perspectives of ourselves and the reality of our situation in life. As sinners, as those who face suffering, but as saints. You see, this is a most characteristic description of believers. And here we have another perspective on this reliance on God's mercy from the position that we occupy, if you will, as saints. A position that we have by grace. We hear it in the first part of verse 8 where the psalmist says, but I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. It's a picture of, of stability, ah, a tree, and, and, uh, and fruitfulness. And where is this stability and fruitfulness? In the house of God, in God's presence, in his dwelling. It sounds like Psalm 92, this, uh, this song for the Sabbath, which begins this way. It is good to praise the Lord and to make music to your name, O Most High, to proclaim your love in the morning, your loving kindness in the morning, and your faithfulness at night. And then as we move through this psalm, we come to verse 12, which says, The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. In verse 9 of our psalm, it says, I will praise you forever for what you have done. In your name I will hope, for your name is good. I will praise you in the presence of your saints. Forever I will praise you. In the presence of your saints, as one of them, among them, set apart, secure in your presence, in your house. We saw that trusting in God's mercy means reliance upon his forgiveness as we are sinners. And we never outgrow our need for that in this life. However however sanctified we may become. The word mercy always is sweet to a, to a believer. But if we have tasted indeed that the Lord is gracious, we belong to that great company of saints who will persevere. We believe in the perseverance of the saints. 
those whom God has called to himself, those whom God has chosen in Christ Jesus and purchased by his blood, they will persevere. They will persevere in faith because the Lord never forsakes his saints and he never withdraws his saving mercy. And you see, that's why we may confess that we trust in God's mercy forever and ever. It's not because uh, we have um, such determination. It's not because we have such great willpower. It's our resolve. We're going to trust in God forever. Yes, we ought to have that resolve. We ought to profess that. We ought to strengthen it. But the basis of our confidence is not our resolve, but the promises of God. We may confess with confidence that we will trust him forever because of the position that he's given to us as saints, as members of his household. It is grace that enables us to do that. Grace that makes this confession possible to make without any doubt. I trust in the mercy in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. It was grace that brought us safe this far, and grace will bring us home. You see, brothers and sisters, this is a confession of saving mercy that will not let us go. And that's the basis for this resolute, joyful, triumphant, confession of faith. In spite of sin, in spite of unknown circumstances before us, the suffering of opposition that we may yet face, as those who are saints by God's grace, we may sing of the mercy of the Lord forever. I sing of mercies that endure, forever builded, firm, and sure, a faithfulness that never dies, established, unchanging in the skies. And in that confidence, may we indeed keep ourselves in the love of God, as Jude writes, live upon that love, continually be strengthened and established and motivated by it, and all the while, all the while, looking, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Amen.